The scripture reading will be from 1 Kings 15. You can stand as you find that, 1 Kings 15. I'm going to read 1 through 5. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. We'll pray. God, I thank you again for this just immense privilege that we have to be called by your name and to be called your friends. We thank you, God, for the saving initiative that you've taken toward us in Jesus Christ and that we are yours, God, by simply receiving the gift of eternal life that you have for us in Christ by faith. And Lord, we recognize that we need you um, to teach us, to lead us into all truth, and we pray that you would use your word in this time together again in our hearts, God, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Maybe see him. Appreciate Connor um, preaching for me last week. Patsy and I were in Pennsylvania. It was her 50th high school reunion, and so she had a really good time. I didn't know anybody, um, but um, I was amazed at all the old people that were there. Um, just says something about, I guess, the 50 year reunions, right? We're here going through um, First Kings, um, and we are at a transition now in the life of Israel where the nation has gone through its division, Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And chapter 15 is, a, is um, an interesting chapter here because it starts out um, and it's, it sets a pattern beginning in this chapter that you see for the rest of First Kings and Second Kings. The pattern being that, we're, that one, we're told who's reigning in one kingdom by who is the corresponding king in the other kingdom. So, for example, it says here in verse 1, now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, but this is not about Jeroboam. This is about Abijam. And so Abijam, the king of Judah, is placed in history in the context of who's king to the north in Israel. And the same happens whenever the author is talking about a king of Israel. He'll say, in the so many year reign of the king of Judah, this guy became king in Israel. So that's the first pattern that's established. And then the second, and this is more significant, is that we are told right at the, at the jump here, right out of the gate, of whether these kings are good or bad. And so it says in verse 3, and Abijam walked in all the sins of his father which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. So we would take from that statement that Abijam was, was um, not one of the good kings. So when you look at all the kings of Israel, all the kings of Judah, there were 20 kings in, in Israel, 19 kings and one king 
and one queen in Judah. Of all those kings, only eight are mentioned as being good. Only eight. Abijam is not one of them. So those eight good kings are Asa, Jehoshaphat, so we haven't even gotten to these yet, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Most of them, we see that they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. With three of them, it says they walked in the ways of David. And in the other five, it says they walked in the ways of their father, who was listed as one of the good kings. None of them does it just come out and say they were saved. I don't like that. It would be so much simpler if God had just said, this guy was a believer and you will see him in heaven. But the Old Testament just typically doesn't use that kind of language that we would like. It doesn't use the New Testament language typically that this person is a person of faith, this person is a saint. Though you do see that. You see some people in the Old Testament called saints. You see somebody like Moses that's called man of God. Someone like David who is said to have a heart after God. Or Abraham who is said that he was declared righteous. And when you come to the book of, of Romans, Abraham is held up as an example of faith and what it means to be saved. And so we will have no trouble saying Abraham was saved. No trouble saying that David, Moses, these different individuals were classified as being the Lord's. Some of them, though, just judging by how they lived their lives, you go, that person was saved? Like Samson? Jephthah? And yet in Hebrews chapter 11, in that list of those of faith... Samson and Jephthah are in that list. And you go, well, it's a good thing God knows who's saved because I look at their lives and I go, oh, really? Samson, Jephthah? But the Lord lists them as belonging to his. Now, the reason I'm belaboring this is because Abijam is a king that if, we, if he didn't have that statement and he walked in all the sins of his father which he had committed before him, we would think this man was saved because of 2 Chronicles. So I want you to flip over to 2 Chronicles with me and go to chapter 13. The whole chapter here is devoted to this man. Whereas in 1 Kings, we only have a few verses. 2 Chronicles 13, go past 1 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and then 2 Chronicles 13. How do you determine when God doesn't just come out and say it? He does not mark Christians. Be convenient if he did. You become a Christian, you receive Christ, and boy, there's a mark on your forehead or something. And everybody goes, that's a Christian. That would be so nice. But he doesn't do that. Now, I know the author of, of um, Left Behind series believes that's going to, something like that will happen. Um, I'm hopefully not to be around to find out if that's the case or not, even though... My friend Peter Reed says I'll be around. Um, how do we know? I am, we had some of the family over for burgers last night, and Melissa told me that, that my grandson Jack, who's three, they, they're asking him, Jack, you know, 
do you have Jesus? In? He goes, Jesus is in my heart. But on the same time, he'll say, I shot a lion today. <laughs> They're going, okay, Jesus is in heart, but he, but he shot a lion today. Which one are we to believe? He's three years old. Do you just go by his words, or do we look at his actions? And most of the time, in fact, every time I've been with Jack, he's just been a wonderful, spirit-filled boy. <laughs> his parents would say, there's another spirit that fills him sometimes. <laughs> But couldn't that be said about any of us? Depending on what day somebody were to show up, and we'd go, wow, what a godly person. Another time we'd go, really? That's a Christian? On what basis do we make this determination? Character, actions, they're kind, they're gentle, they're loving. Well, sometimes we'd say, yeah, but they never go to church. So we start looking for that, um, religiosity. We look for changed life. Yeah, they say they're a Christian, but I don't see any change whatsoever in their life. We look for just a profession of faith. Does that person say they're a Christian? But then you have situations like, I know I had a you know, friend, former student um, from, Uganda, from Uganda, and he said profession of faith. He says, that's easy in Africa. He says, but what we're looking for is exclusive profession of faith because they're idolaters. He says, the Ugandan people are used to worshiping idols, and they're more than happy to just embrace Jesus as one more. And he says, but they're not saved. We're looking for exclusive devotion to Christ. And others would say, yeah, I'm looking for exclusive profession of faith but there ought to be some fruit to go along with that. It's not easy, is it? So then we have a guy like Abijam. Let's look at what it says here in chapter 13 of 2 Chronicles. So the first part, first three verses, are very similar to um, 1 Kings, except verse 3, it says, And Abijam began the battle, this is against Jeroboam, with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 chosen men, while Jeroboam drew up for battle formation against him with 800,000 chosen men who were valiant warriors. And then verse 4, Then Abijah stood on Mount Zimmerim, which is in the hill country of Ephraim. So let's just think about this. Okay, So Abijah began the battle. That's verse 3. Verse 4, they're in Ephraim. That means they are not in Judah. So this looks like, doesn't look like, this is the case. Abijam, or here he's called Abijah, same person. He has, he has advanced on Israel. His army is in Israel, not in Judah. And he is the one who's beginning the battle. Now I may be reading too much in the beginning of the battle, but it's clear they're not in Judah. They're in Israel. They're across the border. And so this doesn't look like a defensive maneuver. This looks offensive. He is taking the offense here to attack Israel with a, with a force that is very much inferior to Jeroboam's. Half as many men, 800,000 to 400,000. And so then he begins his little pre-battle speech. 
Coaches give pregame speeches. He's got his pre-battle speech, verse 5. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Now, does that sound like an unbeliever? Yet remember, he is not one of the good kings of Israel. And yet the first words out of his mouth, the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. True. Covenant of salt. I had to look this up. What's going on here? Nobody knows. Um, but it seems to be, I like it when nobody knows. You can just see what, say whatever you want, right? It seems to be because salt is a very stable compound and that it's, it's, it's virtually impossible to destroy salt. Um, even by burning it, um, it, it just very, very stable, very stable compound. And so a covenant of salt is more seems to be a euphemism or figure of speech for saying that this is, was a permanent thing, a permanent covenant that God made, which we would agree with. The Davidic covenant is permanent. It's eternal. has not been revoked, won't be revoked. Verse 6, Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebath, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his master. Did he? So these, we're going to see this is a little favorable reading of history here. And it, it doesn't, wouldn't have to be taken exactly this way. We know that Jeroboam didn't like Solomon. Solomon didn't like Jeroboam. Solomon decided he was going to kill Jeroboam. Solomon decided, Jeroboam decided he didn't like being killed, so he ran to Egypt. And he stayed in Egypt until after Solomon was dead. And he would have stayed in Egypt, but they called him back. And so the people of Israel called Jeroboam back. A prophecy is made over him prior to that, saying that he would one day be given the ten tribes of, of Israel, and two tribes would be left to Judah. And so he's been called back, and I, you read the account in 1 Kings, there's really no record of him trying to overthrow Solomon or Rehoboam. It's the people that rebelled against Rehoboam, and the people made Jeroboam king. Jeroboam didn't seem to have a big part in all that. But here he's saying the instigator was Jeroboam. And they said in verse 7, And worthless men gathered around him, scoundrels who proved too strong for, Sol for Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Well, Rehoboam was going to attack Israel, remember? And God sent a prophet saying, don't do it. Do not attack. And so it wasn't that, that, that Israel was too strong. God said, I don't want you to go after them. And Rehoboam did about the only smart thing in his life, and he pulled his army back, and he listened to what the prophet said. And so then it says in verse 8, So now you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David, being a great multitude, and having with you the golden calves which Jeroboam made for, your, for, for God's for you. Now they are resisting um, Judah, but they are being invaded. And so we would expect them to resist under these circumstances. Abijah or Abijam sees the kingdom as being the kingdom of God. But Abijam is an idolater. He does not worship God exclusively. He is no different than his father before him, Rehoboam. And he is walking in the evil of his father, Rehoboam. That's what 1 Kings says. 
And so we're hearing a lot of good words come out of his mouth. But he is walking in the evil of his father. Does he understand the truth? Yes. Maybe he's playing it up to his advantage? It would seem so. Israel is meant to be God's nation. But Israel is not the kingdom of God. There is a distinction. Israel is is God's chosen nation. So I want to I'm making a, a distinction here between kingdom and nation. Because what we see is that the kingdom of God on earth will be Christ's kingdom. Israel will be the nation that he rules over all the nations. But a kingdom is composed of many nations. So whether it's the kingdom of Greece or the kingdom of the Babylonians, the kingdom of the Medan Persians, there were many nations that were part of these kingdoms. And it will be just the same with the kingdom of God on earth. One kingdom, many nations. So at this time, it's a bit of an exaggeration to say that Israel is God's kingdom. Israel is God's nation. But he seems to be taking it further than what is actually historically accurate at this time. You could have more easily made that argument when Solomon was king. Certainly you cannot make the argument that Israel is a kingdom under Rehoboam or Abijah. And you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord. Verse 9. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites? Yes, they had done that. And made for yourself priests like the people of other lands? Yes, they had done that. Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull or seven rams, even he may become a priest of what are no gods. This is good stuff. So you, you're, you're, and it's all absolutely correct. You just appoint anybody to be a priest. Whereas the Bible says it must be a Levite and it cannot just be any Levite. He has to be of a particular family line within the tribe of Levi. And if you appoint somebody else, then that person deserves to die. But as for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. The national motto, as we all know, for the United States is, in God we trust. And whenever there's a presidential election coming up, at least on the Republican side, they all stand up there, and one man after another and woman, they're going, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. We've got one this year that's not saying that because he's Hindu. But in times past... You could forget about getting elected or nominated, at least on the Republican side, and not call yourself a Christian. And that's been pretty much the case on the Democratic side as well. So if they might say, I'm Catholic, but I'm Christian. And even President Barack Obama called himself a Christian when he was running for office. We would doubt that by the way that he has lived his life. So these are, these are hard things here. And I, you know, I, if I were teaching in Canada, I wouldn't be able to talk about what I just did because I'm getting political and they don't like being political. 
Elijah's being nice. Um, but that this is a this is political. These are talking about kings, politicians, as it were, not by election, but nonetheless, we're talking politics. And here is a man in politics who is standing and saying all the right things. Would we vote for this man? Man, listen to this. We, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. Oh, my word. We would say, where do I sign up? How do I donate? But remember, God said, he walked in the evil of his father and didn't turn away from it. The sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests, and the Levites attend to their work. And every morning they burn to the Lord burnt offerings and a fragrant incense, and the showbread is set on the clean table, and the golden lampstand with its lamp, lamps is ready to light every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. Man, this is good stuff. And while he's giving his pregame speech, pre-battle speech, Jeroboam is setting an ambush. Talk all you want. Gives me more time to set an ambush. Verse 13. Jeroboam had set an ambush to come from the rear so that Israel was in front of Judah and the ambush was from behind them. And when Judah turned around, behold, they were attacked from both the, the, rear, from, from both the front and the rear so that they cried to the Lord and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised a war cry. And when the men of Judah raised the war cry, then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And when the sons of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand, and Abijam and his people defeated them with a great slaughter, so that 500,000 chosen men of Israel fell slain. Thus the sons of Israel were subdued at that time, and the sons of Judah conquered, because they trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. But he's never called good. How do we know? All these things and all the ways that God uses them, they cry out to God and God defends them and God gives a great deliverance. They trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. And God gave victory. But Abijam is not one of the good kings. Assuming that all the commentaries are correct, all the historians, and they look at this and they go, I mean, there are very few things that it seems like everybody agrees on, but this is one of those things where I haven't seen any, and I haven't looked at scores of commentaries, but I looked at quite a few, and they say these eight good guys are good because of their faith in God. That no person can be good apart from God, as Jesus said. Why do you call me good? There's only one that is good, and that is God. And so to be good, you have to be in relationship with God. And so these eight good kings, it said, are good because of their personal faith in God. And Abijam, who trusted in God in this battle, is not among those eight. What are we to learn 
Here are some things that I've jotted down. We can see for sure in passages like this that God remains faithful to His covenant regardless of the spiritual condition of His people. That's not to say they can get away with anything they want. Even when Israel was taken into captivity for 70 years because of their sin, God remained faithful to His covenant. He always will. Because of this Because of God's faithfulness to His covenant, and because we so often equate blessing with God's approval, it is sometimes hard to know the spiritual condition of those He uses to accomplish His purposes. God honors His covenant, and God blesses sometimes when He is not approving of what's going on. Remember Solomon, worshiping in the wrong places, marrying the wrong women, and yet God comes to him and says, ask whatever you wish and I will give it to you. God does not always bless because he approves of what's going on. God blessed Israel here, gave them a great deliverance. 400,000, 500,000 men die. God blessed And God honored His covenant. But that doesn't mean that God is pleased with Abijam and what is going on. I was in Bandera with Michael yesterday. He was buying a a used freezer. And the man there, he had sold his house and getting rid of stuff. And and, um, Michael asked him as we got to talking, so you're a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian. And um, gave every indication that, yes, he belongs to the Lord. But so much of his theology was clearly wrapped up in prosperity. Look at what, you know, he says, I, I, I ruined my life because I was chasing after money. And um, my kids turned away from me. My wife divorced me. I turned back to the Lord and look at what God has done. Look at the place that I'm selling. And, yeah, praise God. He's tur- he acknowledges his sin. He's turned back to God. But is he rich? Because God is happy? See, it's, it's in all of us. I'm, you know, surely God is pleased because I am so blessed. That's pretty hard to defend scripturally. We thank God for his blessings. But God has said the greatest blessing is what Levi got, remember? Which was not land and wealth. It was God himself. And we are the most blessed people on the earth, not because of our homes and properties, but because we've been given Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest blessing anybody could ever have. And if everything else is stripped away from us, we are still the most blessed people on earth because we have Christ, the all in all. Unsaved, even evil men can know the faithfulness of God and be used by God. And give witness to that. Keep in mind, Abijam, by what God has indicated, a man who is walking in evil is giving witness to the one true God 
and who seems to be at some level seeking to walk according to what God has said. Evil men can know the faithfulness of God and even be used by God. Passages like this help me when it comes to that tricky doctrine of total depravity. Because I certainly believe every single cell of my being has been impacted by sin. But I do not believe that fallen men cannot place faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. That fallen men cannot understand the truth and respond to it before they are regenerated. And it's passages like this that tell me that the modern explanation for total depravity, that mean, which is saying that you cannot believe, you cannot understand the truth until you are first regenerated, I go, what about Abijam and guys like this? They are major problems for that explanation of total depravity. Because this is a guy who is not listed as one of the good ones. And yet you see a lot in him that would make us think that he's saved. And he's not. God always acts in the interest of his covenant people. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, are his covenant people. Israel is also his covenant people. No other nation is. If the entire United States were to get saved, we would not be his covenant nation. He has one covenant nation, and that is Israel. And he will always be faithful to Israel. We should be too. That doesn't mean that Israel always does what's right. They are not. Even when Israel is scoundrels, as they frequently were in the Old Testament, God was faithful to his covenant. God never intended that the United States or any other country take the place of Israel. But we are, as individuals, and as the body of Christ, we are in a covenant relationship with Him. That's what we have celebrated this morning with communion. The new covenant. And it has been made with all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. God hears those who cry out to Him. Especially those who are in covenant relationship with him. But he hears all of those who cry out to him. Unbelievers can know the Bible and what it teaches. They can have some understanding of spiritual truth, at least intellectually. Trusting in religion, religious devotion, or religious accuracy is not the same as trusting in God. Abijam was trusting in his religiosity. We have maintained the temple. We have maintained the sacrifices. We have Levites functioning as priests. We're doing all the right things. That is not the same thing as trusting in God. Though he did trust in God when it came to this battle. Trusting in the faithfulness of God and the promises of God is not necessarily the same thing as trusting in God. The Pharisees believed every word of Scripture. They had their own spin on a few things, we understand. 
And if they truly believed Scripture, Jesus said they would have believed in Him. But if you'd asked them on any of the doctrines, major doctrines, what they believed, they would have been said, yes, 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 believe these things. But Jesus said, you don't believe in me. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. The principles versus the person. This is one of the things that we should ask the Spirit of God to expose in our own hearts. Am I... Am I trusting in certain principles that are outlined in Scripture? Have those become a substitute for trusting you? It's easy to happen. We so easily move toward the legalism of trusting in something other than Christ. Good things, even the principles of Scripture, can become a substitute for trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. The form and content of one's devotion can be correct and the heart can be wrong. God can be acknowledged in our behavior, our religious devotion, but forsaken in our hearts. Jesus says their hearts are far from me. Interesting thing in the middle of this, of this chapter 13 where it says that they cried out to God and they also raised the war cry. And it was when they raised the war cry that God routed Jeroboam. So crying out to God and raising the battle cry often go together. And sometimes God does not give victory until we have raised the battle cry. So in other words, it's one thing to say, God, I believe in you. God says, great, act on what you believe. And then you will see the victory that I've promised you. And so that's what these men were doing. God save us. We believe only you can save us. And then they went into the battle. They acted on what they said. Sometimes we can be too passive as Christians. We cry out to God, but we don't act in faith according to what we're crying out. We're saying, God, I want my children to come to know you. But we don't take them to church. We don't read our Bibles with them in our home. We don't pray with them around their bed before they go to sleep at night. But we're crying out, God, save our children. But we don't act in faith. We don't do what God would have us to do in faith. We cry out to God for our nation, as we should. But we don't get involved by faith. I appreciate so much that we have one of the ladies in the church. She is very much involved. Widow lady, front lines, involved politically in trying to persuade hearts and minds. Cry out to God and raise the battle cry. What's the conclusion here? When I look, read the New Testament at what believers look like. What did Paul look for, for example, when he wanted to know if a person or people group had responded to the Lord? It's the same thing that Jesus looked for throughout the Gospels, and that was faith. Well, what does faith look like? 
Just a few statements. Paul said in Romans 1, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He says, I'm confident that you guys are saved, in other words, because I hear about your faith. When he wrote to the Colossians, chapter 1 of Colossians, similar statement. And he says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So that adds something else, not just faith. We haven't, we've heard of your faith, but we also hear of your love for the saints. So our heart for other Christians would be a pretty good indication if you have a heart for Christ. Because Christ certainly has a heart for his bride, the church. And if I say I love Jesus, but I can do without his people, there's a problem. If we love Jesus and his love has been poured out in our hearts, we are going to love what he loves. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul was only with, the, with these people three Sabbaths, the book of Acts says. And yet these people were gloriously saved in a very short time. And Paul has so much to say about them. He says in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13, he says, And for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So Paul says, when we were with you, something happened. So many times people just hear it and they go, oh yeah, okay, okay, I've heard it. He says, not with you guys. When you heard the preaching, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. See, that's a spiritual thing that Paul says, how people respond to God's word is a pretty good indication of where they are spiritually. And then he says, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also suffered the same suffering at the hands of our... These people were willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's an indication that they belong to him. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Bearing in mind, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And then he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Then verse 9, he says, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All of these things said to Paul, saved. But let me be careful. These would be evidences of genuine faith. But these are not what make a person saved. Jesus saves. Not my commitment to him, not my turning to idols, not my praying. Jesus saves in response to faith in him. This is why Jesus could say to that Philippian jailer, 
when he said, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe and be saved. Believe on Jesus and be saved. So this is why John writes at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, and says, these things I have written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing that you might have life in his name. All it takes to be saved is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, save me. In doing so, I believe you're understanding that he is the Son of God. He is not just a man that you have placed your faith in. These things I've written that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that you might have life in his name. Believing that Jesus is God in the flesh, who gave himself for me, rose again from the dead, that my sins might be forgiven and that I might have his very life, that I might be moved from death to life by his life, his person indwelling me. Yes, once that happens, we would expect, like Paul did, that there would be things that we would see. But even if, there is, if those things are not there, this is why it's so hard. Just as in the Old Testament, sometimes hard to know who's saved and who's not. Same thing today. Because Jesus tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you do not abide, then there will be no fruit in your life. As I've said before, fruit has to do with what others can see. But God is often doing so much in our hearts that no one else can see. But we know it. Under conviction. Hunger. Basic things that God can stir up in the heart of the believer that sometimes other people can't see. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Conviction of sin. These are unseen works. But this we know. A person can be saved, genuinely saved. But if that Christian is not abiding in Christ, living in dependence upon Him, then there will be no fruit of being saved, no outward evidence that they are saved. And I don't want to finish this message without saying as, I, as you've probably heard me say before, I truly believe there is a difference between evidence of salvation, which is what I've been talking about for the last 35 minutes, and assurance of salvation. There is a huge difference. If there is no evidence in my life that I am saved, that does not mean I am not saved. It means I am not abiding. It could mean, I mean I'm not saved. But it doesn't necessarily, that's, we don't have to go there. If a person has openly professed his faith in Christ, but he is not living like it, like the Corinthian church, it can simply mean they are not abiding in Christ. This is the same theme of 1 John, that if we do not abide in him, then we're going to look just like the world. It may mean just that. You do not see Jesus in me because in that particular moment that you were looking, I was not abiding in Christ. 
But my assurance of salvation is not based on my behavior, and neither should yours be. The assurance, in fact, the certainty, as Paul calls it in Romans 4, has to do with faith and not works. I know I am saved because I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ and God's word is true. Those who believe in him for salvation shall be saved. We belong to him because we have received Christ. So if my emotions tell me something other, my emotions are wrong. God's word is true. The assurance, the ground of salvation is the unchanging word of God and the trustfulness of Jesus Christ. No matter what our emotions may be telling us. This is what God has said. And we can take it to the bank. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you that you know. And I know that for the troubled heart, Lord, they may not even know for sure if they are saved. The answer is to turn and ask the one who does know for sure, to ask you. And I thank you, God, that you will always lead us in the truth. Thank you that we don't have to live by emotions, God, but when our emotions are betraying the truth, we can come to the one who is the truth and the Spirit will lead us into all that is true. Thank you, God, that we can just cry out to you for salvation and you've promised to give it and to give it freely without reservation. Lord, I thank you that faith in Jesus is all that you're looking for. And not even an ongoing, uninterrupted faith, but simply to acknowledge in our hearts, God, that Jesus is our Savior and there is no other. And to place our trust in him. And in doing so, we are born again by the Spirit of God, never to be unborn. Salvation is your work, God. It will never be ours. God, we are all people who want to live true to what we have professed. And even in this, it is impossible, apart from the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. We need you, O oh God, to be what we have become. I thank you, God, that it's not up to us to have to determine who's saved and who's not. But I do pray, God, that we would be wise and discerning and we would not just accept empty profession when so much can depend upon it. We need your spirit, Lord. When so many would profess to belong to you, we need your wisdom and discernment. And I pray, God, above all, that we would be just listening to your spirit and what you have to say about us. And that we would walk uprightly, humbly, and in the light with you. In Jesus' name, amen.